Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio. On May 14, 2022, a racist white supremacist entered Topps Friendly Market in Buffalo, New York. He wasn't there to buy food or lottery tickets or cigarettes. He had other plans. Brandishing an AR-15, the teenaged white gunman entered the market to carry out a premeditated mass murder. Peyton Gendron, shot 13 black shoppers that day in Buffalo, killing 10 of them. Roberta A. Drury, 32 years of age. Margus D. Morrison, 52. Andre McNeil, 53. Aaron Salter, 55. Geraldine Talley, 62. Celestine Cheney, 65, Hayward Patterson, 67, Catherine Massey, 72, Pearl Young, 77, Ruth Whitfield, 86. In a manifesto obtained after the mass murder, we learned that Gendron was attempting to kill as many black people as possible. He devised an elaborate timeline for the attack, named the weapon he would use, and mapped out a plan to live stream the entire event. He cited Dylan Roof as one of his inspirations. Roof was the white supremacist who killed nine people during a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. One of the things that uh, we as a family uh, wanted to ensure was that we call it what it is. It is white supremacy, it is hate, it is racism, it is bigotry, and we gotta call it what it is and stop beating around the bush and take it head on because it's proliferating. It's not getting better. The Great Replacement Theory fueled the attack. In essence, it's the idea, an idea with a long history that white people are under siege, that immigrants and black people, supported by global Jewish financiers, aim to replace white people in this country. Many have embraced this false narrative and used it to justify their racism and anti-Semitism. As of late, the theory has grown popular among the right as they push policies, curricula, and laws that seem driven by fear, grievance, and hatred. We find ourselves, once again, at a crossroads. Questions the country has grappled with since its inception continue to plague us. Who are we as a nation? What are our obligations to each other? Is it possible for us to live up to our promise of forming a multiracial democracy? Or will we be torn asunder by political division and mean-spirited partisanship? We'll end the series where we began with the comments from Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Think back to episode one when he invoked the Compromise of 1877 as a viable precedent for resolving claims of election fraud after the 2020 election. And so I endeavored to look for door number three, a third option, and for that I looked to history, to the precedent of the 1876... Now we have a bit of context for Cruz's remarks, illuminated by United States history, and perhaps you see them in a new light. I'm Dr. Eddie S. Glaude, Jr., And this is the final episode of History Is Us, Chapter 6, Democracy Imperiled. 
you think about Make America Great Again or Take Our Country Back, you know, a lot of that rhetoric is playing to people's status anxiety, saying to them, we will restore you to your rightful place at the front of the line. It kind of brought the question of what's next. We will create the what's next. I'm betting on the dividing line that goes through all of us. I will always bet on love. In this final episode, we return to the historical moment that served as my impetus for creating this series. I wanted to turn our attention to history as a tool to help us think about the present with the hope that we can better understand the choices before us. So much has happened in the interim. The carnage of Buffalo, the horror of Uvalde, Texas, where 19 babies and two teachers were left dead. And the bitterness of our politics has only intensified. The January 6th committee is holding public hearings to show us what actually happened on that day. And the midterm elections are on the horizon. American democracy is imperiled, but I believe we have a tremendous opportunity ahead. This crisis affords us a chance to choose to be a more just society. What choice will we make? In some ways, the January 6th attack on the Capitol was an echo of the collapse of radical reconstruction. What we witnessed that day was an all-out assault on our democracy, a manifestation of our ugly history. I had the opportunity to speak to New Jersey Senator Cory Booker about all of this. My vision was the immediacy of the Senate floor watching the proceedings, which in and of themselves were a moment of a tragic injustice. And I was still just in this state of shakenness as I watch my colleagues, my coworkers, get up one by one and prepare to do what has never been done before in history, but threaten to stop the counting of the electors, the accepting of the results. And as one of my friends, the senator from Oklahoma, is getting up to speak, I watch the vice president be shuttled out, grassly pushed to that president's presiding chair, and things began to unravel from there. Senator Booker offers a unique firsthand perspective on the emotions and chaos that U.S. legislators experienced. He was there on the floor of the Senate. But we're still on the Senate floor as staffers are coming in crying and shaken and men with long guns and others are storming in, taking positions as they're closing and locking gallery doors and our doors. And you had this tense period until they finally found a way to evacuate us. And I remember being the last one to leave the Senate floor, looking up in the gallery and seeing the press look so frightened. As soon as I walk out of the chamber, I think the gravity of it struck me even more when I saw the first person I saw beyond my colleagues and staffers that were in the chamber was an injured police officer. And I asked him what happened. And he said, I was hit. And that was not the response that I expected. Maybe he fell or whatever. And then all along our escape route, there were officers down, injured, being tended to. And that's what really, I think, got us all quiet. And by the time we got into an undisclosed location, we were then asked to stay there, but I wanted to get back to my office. And so this was the moment I'll never forget. I came back to this room I'm sitting in right now, turned on the TV, and the first image I saw, it gets me very emotional, was the Confederate flag. And then the whole power of our history, you know, the Confederates tried to take the Capitol. They made a run for this building to take over the government in a sense, and they were repelled. And here I was generations later, and now that flag is being waved victoriously, just literally steps from where I was sitting moments before, as they now had taken the Senate floor. I remember that day, too. I remember seeing the Confederate flag and hearing shouts of stop the steal and this is our country. 
everything was out in the open now. Nostalgia for the good old days was now, no matter what the pundits said, dangerous racist politics, as it has always been. These people, I thought to myself, don't believe I belong here. To them, this is their country. And that flag, the flag of traitors, of those who believe that I was nothing more than chattel, spoke volumes about their motive and intent. And then I sit and just watch the totality of what was going on, the violence, the anti-Semitism, the, the just blatant racism. And I ached in a way that and it may be an interesting emotion to feel, but I felt shame because this nation so let me down in that moment that we could let it come to that. In the days afterwards, I was just talking to one of the Capitol Police officers and to hear some of the black guys just tell me what they were called, how they were taunted and jeered in ways that bring you all the way back to the marches of civil rights activists and the beatings of black people who dared to do freedom rides or try to cross a bridge. It was this collapsing of history into the present that I would have never imagined possible. The moment was unthinkable for Senator Booker unimaginable. And he was hardly alone in his shock. So it begs the question of how we got here. What parts of our history made January 6th possible? What were the specific conditions that gave rise to what we witnessed at the Capitol? Let's hear from Professor John Sides. He's the William R. Keenan Jr. Chair in the Department of Political Science at Vanderbilt University and an expert on political behavior in American and comparative politics. He's the author of multiple books, including Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Campaign, and The Battle for the Meaning of America. What we saw in 2016, which I think had its echoes in the Tea Party as well, and frankly earlier than that, to speak of history, this is not a new thing, was this perception, not so much that I'm not doing well economically, it's that I think other people are getting ahead of me and don't deserve to get ahead of me. So the politics of deservingness, which has been a heavily racialized politics in this country's history, comes to the fore. Once again, social and economic anxiety in America reared its head. In some ways, how we talk and the misleading stories we tell ourselves often give way to these sorts of concerns. Parts of America are deeply preoccupied with the idea that quote-unquote others are getting ahead of them. These people who refuse to work or follow the rules and only want a handout are making progress because big government has enabled them unfairly to jump the line. At the same time, these same Americans are struggling to keep their noses above water, struggling to make ends meet and to pass on a better life to their children. They need an account, an explanation of what is happening to them and to the people they love. They find scapegoats for those negative feelings in deeply racialized historical narratives that have become part of our common sense. For example, ideas about immigrants, quote-unquote, taking jobs, provided an incorrect explanation for employment instability in the early aughts. Ire for the first black president was a response to concerns that America's racial order, with white people atop everyone else, might finally be disrupted. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We must know that language and rhetoric are important tools for building worlds. They constrain or expand our imaginations, shape the ways that we design solutions to our most pressing problems, and even help us communicate our fears and our hopes. Words matter. For example, a lot of people talk about the role of the Great Recession and subprime mortgage crisis and all of this as a precursor to the Tea Party. But of course, part of what made people angry was this notion that somehow the government was helping certain people but not helping me, or the government gave loans to people so they could get mortgages and they were the ones who defaulted on their loans. Who are those people? In many ways, that's a racialized characterization. So I think for us, I think the way that we think about the politics of economic insecurity and anxiety is what's important is not just do you have anxiety. The question is, how are you thinking about your economic position relative to the position of others? And if you feel like there are people cutting ahead of you in line, whether that's African-Americans, that's undocumented immigrants, politicians give people that idea. They play into that sentiment. They help to create that resentment. To us, that's what's really important. To me, when I look at Trump, for example, and you think about Make America Great Again or Take Our Country Back, that kind of rhetoric, you know, a lot of that rhetoric is playing to people's status, anxiety, status, resentment, basically saying to them, we will restore you to your rightful place at the front of the line. The political slogan, Make America Great Again, is derived from Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. Reagan once said, quote, for those who've abandoned hope, we'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. We've heard this before. History damn sure rhymes. Partisanship maps neatly onto racialized anxieties, and it's deeply historical. We saw it during the Obama administration and the Trump administration alike. And we see it now during the Biden administration. Our ever-present race problem haunts us. It inspires fear and animates the most violent assaults to our democracy. Democrats have become a more progressive party on issues related to race and immigration and things like that. It's that alignment that I think makes the politics feel particularly challenging, feel particularly angry, raises the stakes in some ways, because you know, our argument is that issues about race and identity are so emotionally charged. They're so integral to very basic questions about like who's a legitimate member of our national community. The point here is not to say that this is a both sides problem, polarization, blah, blah, blah. The point is just to say that these differences of opinion where Democrats now endorse a more consistent liberal or progressive view of issues like race and immigration, Republicans do not. You know, that only compounds and intensifies the partisan alignment on this. And you know, it's hard to draw a straight line between that and what happened on January 6th. You know, January 6th is, a, you know, it's a small group of people in the grand scheme of our large country. It was, had a specific catalyst in this organized campaign to stop the steal. Professor Seides is right. Correlation does not imply causation, but connections between rhetoric and action remain important. He elaborates. It's very difficult, I think, to imagine a world in which the perceptions of the great stakes of the election wouldn't be there if it weren't for this idea that who wins office tells us which groups in society win and which groups lose. And it's not just partisan groups. It's tied to, again, I think, to views of race, to racial identity and the like. I think the fear is that when you have growing partisan alignment on these very charged issues related to race and identity, that just creates I guess you could call it, you know, tinder, right? That makes a, a fiery explosion like January 6th somewhat more likely. I don't suspect that's going to happen every election or anything like that. I mean, it really depends upon the specific decisions of political leaders, especially the losing candidate in the moment. You know, Clinton conceded, Romney conceded, right? Like we didn't have to have a violent invasion of the Capitol. But I do fear that it's easy to perceive that this kind of extraordinary non-democratic, extrajudicial violence, all those kinds of tactics are justified when you think that you're just protecting the identity of the nation. Careful attention to our nation's history suggests that there's a relationship or some sort of ideological continuity 
between declarations like Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us, and the chants we heard in the Capitol on January 6th. It's all very chilling. On that day, we heard loud and clear a particular understanding of American identity. The calls to stop the steal and take back the country were underwritten by a fierce sentiment that white people are the true Americans, that white votes are the only ones that should count. We know who lives predominantly in places like Atlanta, in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Detroit. Some fear, especially those who believe the replacement theory, that a certain view of the country is being lost. And they are clinging to that view. They are willing to defend it at any cost. And they are willing to throw this entire democratic experiment away on behalf of it. There's a reservoir of sentiment that ranges, you know, from just sort of um, a fairly inchoate concern about like the direction of the country and uh, these other groups getting ahead and I'm being left behind to what we would identify as just straight up white nationalism, which of course has its anti-Semitic components, its racist components. And not everyone who feels that inchoate concern or resentment, you know, subscribes to the tenets of the Oath Keepers, right? Or the Proud Boys. So, you know, we have to be careful here to be precise about what people's attitudes really are. Nevertheless, right, that is a reservoir of sentiment that can be mobilized. The reservoir that does exist, maybe the action they take is just voting, which is their democratic right. Maybe the action they take is Charlottesville or January the 6th. So again, like I do think there's a lot of contingency, a series of steps that have to happen between having this reservoir and then having a violent attack on the the Capitol. I think that could easily not have happened. It would not have taken much. It would have taken a concession speech by Donald Trump on the Saturday after the election. I do think that there is a challenge to democracy that exists when this kind of sentiment can be mobilized. I think we could say, with some confidence, that most violent historical moments did not need to happen. They weren't inevitable or unavoidable. Choices were made, and action was taken. Our present circumstances are of our own doing. And because of that fact, because we have been making choices all along, The events of January 6th were hardly a surprise for some among us. For many of us, there's kind of this notion of, oh, this could never, for many people, that can never happen to us in America. Nobody could actually conceive of this white, angry mob descendant on the Capitol. That wasn't that far-fetched to me. That white, angry mob has been attacking and descending on the bodies of Black people on institutions that acknowledge and accept Black people. There has been a constant violent attack towards Black Americans and people of color in this nation and poor people, quite frankly, in this nation since this nation's inception. Latasha Brown is a community organizer, political strategist, and consultant. She is the co-founder of the voting rights group Black Voters Matter, which has been noted for its work on the 2017 U.S. Senate special election in Alabama and its influence during the 2020-21 Georgia Senate elections. Here's her take on the attack on the Capitol. While in that moment it felt like a culmination of what we've seen through history in this nation, this history of, you know, that there is an element that exists a group of people in this nation that really don't believe or love America. They don't really love or believe in democracy. They're interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is the consolidation of white power. And so we saw that on January 6th, but that's a through line that has been happening in this country. History shadows our steps. It is incumbent upon us to learn from the past and to make informed choices about what we should do next. We might think of it as funded experience, the stuff in the rubble and ruin that helps us make better choices. 
I actually quickly kind of shifted to this feeling of hope in a strange way, because I think that exposure is like the emperor with no clothes, like the exposure to see kind of this visceral, violent reaction. And these people who had no belief of the sanctity of this nation, that it would open up the way of a possibility of people to consider creating something new and different, that it would be those elements of democracy that this nation has stood on, that we embrace and we stand on, that people would rise up on that, and that we would also possibly finally deal with the violent nature of racism and the violent nature of anti-democratic factions in this nation, and so that it would be a reset moment. So in this interesting ways, I held kind of these two feelings, these two emotions that I was kind of struggling with going back and forth around the scene of this extraordinary moment of hate filled with so much hate and violence and arrogance and privilege. But on the other hand, it kind of brought the question and facilitated the question of what's next. We will create the what's next. Anytime we live through a spectacular moment of violence in this country, whether it's a white supremacist massacre in Buffalo or senseless murder in Uvalde, there's this feeling of emotional and internal conflict for those who bear witness. On the one hand, there's a wave of attendant grief and sorrow, mourning yet another tragedy. On the other hand, there's the question about what's next, or maybe the determination, given the loss and the grief, to move the country down a different path. There's January 6th, but there's also January 7th. We have to, no matter what, keep inventing hope. This desire to attend to our collective loss often accompanies an urge to mobilize. And that is also a historical phenomenon. We have examples from the past to help us navigate our grief. Here's Senator Booker. I had one of the profound gifts of my life was to work as a colleague with John Lewis. And I asked him once, what does it feel like to have fought so hard to get voting rights passed in 1965, to literally bleed for it and to have to watch it now be rolled back to see the Shelby decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act? And that's why I often tell people like, I'm blessed in the sense that sometimes I don't have the strength, but I can lean on that of others. And to see him not even flinch, not even express any kind of momentary surrender to cynicism, to see him express to me exactly what you said, that every generation has to earn the rights that too often are taken for granted. Every generation has to secure the same freedoms over and over again to see his determination and grit to his last days, literally, as one of the last famous pictures of him was taken on a Black Lives Matter plaza. I lean on that a lot. John Lewis was a powerful agent for change. But one of his most important messages was that his ethical commitments, his ardor for justice, his work to help the nation live up to its promise was hardly exceptional. He stressed that there were opportunities for all of us to take part, to get into good trouble. When I reflect on our current moment, beset with so much tragedy and heartbreak, I know that we must muster a kind of creative energy to break free from the shackles of our days. It will involve going beyond having difficult conversations across party lines and finding middle ground. We are called to imagine America anew. And that will mean, I believe, learning about and acknowledging the ugly realities at the heart of the American story, as well as committing ourselves to the struggle to birth something new. 
it's hard every day. It's hard. It's a struggle. But again, there's those before us who showed us the way. How do you fight when you have wounds? How do you fight when you have had your hope scarred and dashed? How do you resurrect hope as a daily morning ritual? And so that's what I lean on, man, amidst a time that for me is very frustrating that an essay I wrote after the Rodney King verdict literally could be read today as I did in times after George Floyd, as I read to the Democratic caucus and not telling them in the beginning that this was me at 23, that that writing could still be just as relevant today, driving the truth that while lots has changed, and, and I will be one of those people that say we, we have made significant advances, to see that we are back to being stuck with just getting people to understand or empathize enough to continue forward progress and not fall backwards. It's hard. It is very hard. Strength comes from our brokenness. And I am a better warrior for justice and peace and love because of my brokenness. And I think brokenness can lead to fear and hate or a severed belonging where we don't feel any connection, where we can otherize people. But I also think brokenness can create space for wisdom and for empathy. And actually, our jagged, broken pieces create more points of contact with potentially other people's pieces to create a better whole, to create more potential for healing and the strength that can only come from when people come together around in our common aspirations for things to get better. I dwell there often in my own brokenness. I don't retreat from that in the sense that I always say, if America hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. So to live with a consciousness of the continuing struggle for America is to have an intimate understanding of brokenness and brokenheartedness. But something's got to come from that. And that's where I try to dwell, which is in that space to meet and connect and grow. And so for me, look, if I didn't believe we could make a difference, if I didn't believe we can reach a truly multicultural democracy, if I didn't believe in to have some invincible faith in humanity as a whole, because at the end of the day, draw the lens back further, these are human problems. As I now have a job where I get to travel around the earth, I see the spectacle of humanity for all of its failures, as well as all of its triumphs. And so I know that we can, in moments of this, we can find ourselves. Like many of you, I'm searching for answers. Sometimes I'm a bit too skeptical of our leaders in politics. I want to understand what ordinary folk can do. How do we chart a path forward? And where do we go from here? I must admit that I often struggle with this question. Why should we have faith in this country after all that we've suffered? I asked Senator Booker these exact questions. You asked me this question after a series of mass shootings from churches to supermarkets to schools. And I hurt and I ache. And so you're asking me at a time that I have a lot of emotion and frankly, I'm a lot of my own trauma dealing with the death of people that I know and care for has really been heightened. And with my sense of wonder to this country, and it really has been gun violence that has broken me a number of times in my life. What will it take? How much blood needs to be spilled before we as a nation own up to the uniqueness. You know, I said to a reporter very frustratingly as I was walking back here right now, where they said they were asking me about, like, did I think that the current talks going on would yield to, in this Congress, real meaningful gun safety? And I said, no, I don't. And I said, I'm not being cynical. I just know too much of our history. And I said to them, we passed anti lynching legislation this year. A century after the problem, 200 plus attempts, thousands of people dead, but we passed it. But I then I said that, you know what? The people from Parkland, the people from Newtown, 
the people from a small church in South Carolina, these families, these survivors actually have organized and actually have gone into the grassroots. They've actually passed dozens of pieces of legislation in states from coast to coast that have made people safer. Their energy and their effort and their fight hasn't been for naught. And sometimes it takes those warriors who in the midst of unimaginable grief, four little girls dying in a bombing in Birmingham, people being killed when they're just registering to people to vote in Mississippi. Sometimes it takes the worst of imaginable moments to bring about the best of human nature and determination. And so I may be cynical or skeptical about this Congress right now, but I actually take heart from history and American history in particular, as Baldwin said at the end of The Fire Next Time. It's a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. And I take strength from those stories. I take strength from those historic facts. Senator Booker gestures towards grassroots movements and the power that regular, everyday folk harnessed in the wake of tragedies past. He's thinking about some of the characters and moments we have discussed in previous episodes. Those same characters and moments proved to be instructive for us. Something special can happen when ordinary people take a stand. People like Latasha Brown, who we heard from earlier, are fighting every day. They are daring to believe that a better America, shorn of the ugliness of white supremacy, is indeed possible. Part of our work in creating Black Voters Matter was that we would focus on three particular areas. That one thing that we would do, that we would create Black Voters Matter Fund, we wanted to be very intentional that we would create a new mechanism to fund and resource grassroots organizing. The second thing that was really important to us was around messaging, that at the end of the day, while we're seeing what is happening in this nation, I think what even led up to January 6th, we're in a narrative war. This isn't just about a political war. It is around who holds the narrative and what is the narrative that is being shared and being believed. And so part of the narrative of January 6th was that someone stole the election. And as a result, there was this intention to take and undermine white power in this nation. And so that narrative is caught root. And what you see is you see this actions that are literally being fed by this narrative. And so what we wanted to do is to create an organization that shifted the message, that the message matters, that we would actually have a message that would speak to people in a couple of ways, particularly Black voters, that we wanted to stop this objectifying Black voters that would reduce us to a number in an election cycle. That essentially we were as good as our numbers counted to shift an election to a party one way or the other. That in fact, what we wanted to do is to shift the framework instead of it being about electoral power, that it would be about, it would literally be about power and far beyond just participatory power. And then the third vehicle really was around mobilization, but not mobilization just in the sake of an election that's very transactional, but a transformative kind of framework that we would actually build out an ecosystem. How can you build the infrastructure that whether it's an issue around police brutality, whether it's an issue around the school board, whether there's an election, but that you had an ecosystem and relationship and an infrastructure that people could collectively, a community could collectively respond to when they're being attacked. Latasha Brown and countless others have worked to realize that transformation. Black Voters Matter believes that effective voting allows a community to determine its own destiny. Their work in the South, and in Georgia specifically, has transformed the voting landscape by building the capacity of grassroots organizations through grant funding. Black Voters Matter supports community-based groups with complex local networks. The impact of organizing and mobilizing cannot be overstated. In the case of Georgia, it meant increased voter turnout in nine Southwest counties in 2020, a game changer for state elections. Their efforts made all the difference. We have midterm elections in November of 2022. 
and the future of our democracy is on the ballot. Storms are always coming. Now, some will attempt to cash in on panic and fear this fall. And the question before all of us is, how will we respond? Will we allow the forces among us to destroy the Republic? Will we stand by as the betrayal deepens and we descend into darker and even more dangerous times? Or will we finally rise to the occasion and end this nightmare once and for all? There have always been challenges to American democracy, and we know American democracy is constantly in formation. It's not something that we achieved at any point, right? Fully achieved. It's something where we're continually working. Once again, here's Professor Sidings. If I think about what we have to do, whether we're talking about citizens or whether we're talking about what we're asking of elected leaders, I think it's just continuing that struggle to articulate what democracy is, to point out where we fall short and to fight. I mean, to fight in a way that doesn't, of course, imply punching Capitol Police officers or hitting them with flagpoles. And so the only way out of that that I think preserves democratic values that we should care about is to see it as the continuation of this longer historical struggle. Indeed, the struggle is ongoing, and we must be willing to fight. Remember Secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, Lonnie Bunch? America is not just an idea, he said. It's not just an argument. It is a fight. And that fight will demand courage and imagination. It will require all of us. My faith is in people and possibilities. I'm a Black woman from the Deep South that I enjoy a rich life and opportunity, even the opportunity, brother, to talk to you to be able to be in these spaces, that's because there are folks who were denied that opportunity, maintained a vision, created the work, and opened up the space for me to be here. Opened up the space for us to have this conversation. Opened up this space for me to be able to do the work that I do to move around in the world much more free than they were able to do. And so I say that because change has never come because just a piece of paper was placed as policy that created the change. It has always been a political will that was backed by the belief in people to create possibilities that create a change. And so if you go historically and look, it has been in the deepest, most intense moment in political history that when you see some of the most profound shifts and change happen, we are in that moment. I am convinced that we're in this moment. We are in a moment to be reflective, to actually see what is happening in this nation and make a decision how we want to go forward. Sometimes I think we focus too much on elections. Not that we should engage, because I'm the first one. I mean, my whole life has been centered around elections. But we see as elections as transactions instead of a transformative process. I think that we have to move beyond this transaction around winning an election for a party or people. We've got to do that in a moment to reduce the harm. But we've got to be committed to have a radical reimagination so that we can actually make transformative change. And so as we're going into this midterm elections, I hope that people really recognize that our voting should not just be voting in the moment. It is literally, we are voting for 50 years down the road, that when we're not participating, we are conceding. And so I'm raising that if change is to happen, it won't be because of the other side created the change. It will be because we literally took that as part of our mission and we stood in the space of our agency and we forced that change to happen. And so I'm hoping that people that listen to this during this midterm election know what time it is, that this is a moment, not that we're just responding to the politics of the moment. Yes, absolutely, we have to respond to the politics of the moment. But I'm responding to the politics of the moment with my eyes in a higher place, that until America is an America that is laid out in the Declaration of Independence, and we ain't there yet, that all people have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're not there yet. We've got work to do, but we also have to recognize that each opportunity we have to vote, that we have to vote, each opportunity we have to engage to build institutions, that our focus should be on how are we advancing humanity and how are we creating an evolutionary moment so that we can actually get to that trajectory of the America that we desire and we deserve. 
Miss Brown's infectious hope for the country shows the motivation and imagination fueling grassroots activism. It demonstrates what's possible when we work together. Senator Booker turns to history to maintain his belief in something better, too. My only anchor to faith is our past, because sometimes the present hurts so much. It's that Baldwin line. He says, American history is, and Negro history in particular, he goes deeper, is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. So that's the first thing. I don't think you can look at American history with all its wretchedness and pain, with all of its unrelenting assaults on human dignity and human life, and see how we came through that all and not believe in the infinite capacity of love to prevail despite the cancer of hate. So I do believe in that. And I'm not declaring some Pollyannish belief that we are in the promised land because we ain't. But I believe in us. I believe in the idea of America. And as the great Langston Hughes said, you know, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. And that conviction drives hard in the currents of our history to make this nation fulfill its promise to every successive generation. I cling to hope, especially in the darkest of hours. As James Baldwin said, hope is invented every day. And if that is true, which I believe it is, then we have to beat back despair every day. I also hope these stories will compel us to act. I rejoice in the redemptive power of love. I mean, that's at the center of my being. I will never, ever stop. I have found grace in unlikely places. And I've actually found grace from people coming from some of the most broken places. People who themselves have been broken, who in some ways show me the way towards a deeper love, a more mature love, a more real love than the kind of hippy-dippy love song kind of love. And so I don't know what the future will be with any specific description, but I'm going to tell you it will be better than the present because I'm betting on the dividing line that doesn't go through parties, the dividing line that goes through all of us, that runs through the soul of all humanity between dark and light. I will always bet on the light. I will always bet on love. And so my nights, dark as may may get, are still full of the stars of the past, people who are dead and gone, who still help show me away, who still are my North Star. And I hope that I can live in a way, despite all my mistakes and stumbles and need for grace, I hope that the little bit of light I can bring to this world, I know that even when I'm dead and gone, it's going to help guide other folks forward. And that is going to be the story, I believe, of America. That is ultimately our hope and our redemption, should we live with that conviction. I want this series to make room for hope in each of our hearts. A closer look at our history has revealed incredible and perhaps unthinkable moments of triumph and steadfast determination to begin again in the face of unimaginable horror. Those moments might be a source of inspiration for us all. No matter what we're going through, we have to reimagine our nation or we will lose it. The stakes are that high. And whether we know it or not, we are the source of change. Even when change seems wholly impossible, I want us to hold firmly to the belief that we can be a truly multiracial democracy. We can be otherwise, but we must first confront who we are and what we have done. We must leave behind the comfort and safety of our fantasies and our illusions. 
And we must say no to those who would have us drown in our hatreds and fears. We are an imperfect people trying to figure out how to live together differently and in the fullness of democracy's promise. New stories can be told about a new America. It is up to us. The choice is ours to begin again. History is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran and John Meacham, narrated by me, Dr. Eddie Esglaw Jr., and written by Shelby Sinclair and me, directed by Paige Heimson. Production assistance by Terrence Malingon. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mutt. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. Research by Shelby Sinclair, and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leah. Thank you for listening to Chapter 6 of History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals, and John Meacham Studio. If you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.